You may be seated. There's an optical illusion that's easy to fall for, even if you know the trick. The more distant you are from other people, the more invulnerable they appear. You see yourself as you are, with your flaws just as clear as your successes. But you see most other people on their terms, only from the side they present to the world. And at first glance, they've got everything figured out. With everything set in stone, securely embedded in their community, wrapped up with their loved ones, their lives like a finished work of art. But it's only just a trick of perspective, because you can't see the cracks from so far away. How insecure their footing, how malleable they really are. How many years of effort went into shaping their persona into something acceptable? How many other hands it took to build their lives, which are still only ever a work in progress? It's the kind of basic human vulnerability that we'd all find familiar, but is still somehow surprising when we notice it in others. It's an open question why we have such public confidence and such private doubts. Maybe that contradiction is what keeps us moving, wanting to be more than what we are, and never be satisfied. Maybe it lets us keep our distance, to avoid too much friction as we brush past each other. Or maybe it's what draws us together, the only irreplaceable thing we still need each other for. Just one last excuse to keep stopping by, so we can prop each other up, and remind ourselves that nothing is set in stone, not even who we are pretend to be. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are new to North Hills, I want to promise you that uh, after today it gets better. I'm a B-team fill-in here, and I'd like for us to do this thing. Uh, a friend of mine would say this often. His name is Nick, and he would say this, and he would say, let's all just take a big, deep breath and lower our expectations, all right? <laughs> So everybody just kind of breathe in with me here. All right, there we go. So uh, really honestly, today I'm going to be talking to you. um, In the past, I've talked to you about things that I am still going through. I've talked to you about things that I'm still kind of like getting, but usually it's only after. Like I'm on the, like the tail end of it, and I'm like, I think I've learned this stuff. And I feel like maybe I have some things to share with you that like are like deliverance. Like I feel like maybe I've kind of moved past this. Uh, and today, I want to tell you that I'm square in the middle. Uh, and I'm not sure that's going to change. And I would probably submit that most of us are going to be square in the middle of this one. And so, um, a little bit different, but I, I would like to pray as we start. I know we've already prayed a couple times now, but God, I just pray that you're your word would be illuminated to us, God, that as we read it, as we look into it, as we look into our own hearts and our own lives, God, I pray that you would help us to be honest. Honest with your word, not forcing it to say things it's not. And Lord, that we would be honest with ourselves 
not trying to be something that we're not. And so, God, I just pray that you'd be with your people, Lord, as, as we, are, we are coming in from all sorts of different places, all sorts of different difficulty. Lord, I pray that you'd be with your people as they receive this message, that it would change them. As James says, that we should look into your word and then walk away having done something about it. And so, Lord, I pray that today that you'd help me to do something about it. Lord, that you'd help us to do something about it. And Lord, I just pray that your grace would be on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I don't think it's going to come to anyone's surprise that I hear voices in my head sometimes. I mean, some of you might be like, well, Adam, that does actually make a lot of sense, and now I understand you, and it's okay. You know, give me a hug. I don't mind hugs. Um, But I do. Sometimes I, I run into a situation, and there's this thing that I have, like, this narrative conversation going on in the back of my head. Specifically, this one's kind of funny. I'm on a diet right now. I know you can't tell, but I am. And um, one of the things about this diet, which should be true of all diets, I can't think of a diet that would make sense to do this. Chocolate chip cookies are not on the list of things that I can eat, all right? You can't eat those. And if you find a diet where you can have chocolate chip cookies... Uh, please let me know after the service. I'm looking to switch. Because, um, honestly, I am not a sweets kind of person, but I love chocolate chip cookies. So much to the extent that if it's sitting there, like either on the plate or still on the pan, and I'm just idle in the kitchen, I will find myself six cookies in before I even come to and realize what I'm doing. (laughs) You know? So, but this diet kind of has this thing in my head where it's like, no... You've got to think. And so for the last couple of Sundays, uh, we made cookies for Sunday school, and we make them Saturday night, and we serve them on Sunday. So that means that we have chocolate chip cookies in my house on Saturday night, sitting, just looking so beautiful and tasty and good, just sitting there waiting for me. And there's this conversation that goes on in my head, and I think, hmm, those look delicious. I'm going to eat one. And then there's this other voice in my head that's like, that's not allowed. You're not supposed to do that. And then the other voice is like, shut up, other voice. <laughs> halt, halt, halt. <laughs> hey, I mean, really, anybody who's, can I get an amen on that? Like, seriously, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, shut up, other voice. And, you know, there's this thing, like, I, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, uh, Looney Tunes, they would often have this, this thing that happens when a, a character has a choice. There would be a version of the character that would show up on usually their right shoulder with, like, little devil horns and a pitchfork, right? And then there would be a little version of the character that shows up on this side with, like, angel wings and a halo. And they would argue back and forth. And then the character would just kind of pick one and then go with that. Well, you know... I think that we often find ourselves in the middle of these conversations regularly. And some of them are just goofy. Some of them are just really, really silly. Um, There was one that is less silly for me um, when I was uh, my first year of junior college. So really quick history. I got out of high school, thought I was going to drop out of high school. didn't drop out because I had this mentor family that intervened for me. They told me that I could be a good person and do good things and even maybe be a pastor someday. Who knew? Uh, And so they said, you can do it. You need to go to school. You need to go to college. So what I did was I took classes and I worked full-time right out of high school. I was, like, being really proactive. And I also, um, part of this process was I took an English class. And Anya's heard this story, and so has Robert Paul. But that's fine. 
you can hear it again. Um, so I took this English class, freshman English, which you think freshman English in college shouldn't be that hard. You know, I did fine in high school English, and I should be good for this. It was miserably difficult. Like, the lady, I think, like, her little angel person died <laughs> early, early on in life. And so she just had this little version of herself with, the, like, the horns and the pitchfork just telling her all sorts of things. And she's like, uh-huh, that's a good thing. I'll make my students write 14-page papers on the first week. Like, it was terrifying. And my impulse was to quit. But then there was this other voice in my head that was like, no, you shouldn't quit. Like, you've committed to this. And that, at that point, that voice kind of sounded like my mentors, the ones that said, I believe in you and you can do better things. And I said, shut up, other voice. And then I went down to the registrar's office and I quit. I dropped out of the class. So that's like neutral. That's not really that bad. That's not really that good. It's just, it just happened. But then this other thing happened where I went over to their house after school. I said, hey, how are you? And they said, good, how was school? Well, I didn't want to tell them that I wasn't the person that they thought I was. So I said, good. Hey, you want to play basketball? <laughs> you know, like if we change the topic, it's like we don't have to talk about that anymore. And um, I just said this one little small word that could be interpreted as true. Like, my time at school was brief, but good, because I dropped the class, and I was happy about that. But I didn't say all that. I just said, good. And so the following week came around, I went over to their house again, and they said, how's school? What'd you learn? I said, it was good again. Just same old, same old. You know English. Just so Englishy, you know. How do you talk about a thing that you hadn't experienced? I'm really bad at it. And so another week would happen, and they'd say, "How was school?" And I'd say, "Oh, it was pretty good." The teacher today, and then I'd start making up stories, like trying to sell this thing, because I found myself in the middle of a lie that had grown over time, and I knew it was wrong. The whole process. I mean, I knew Jesus at this point. I knew that lying is wrong. Like you didn't have to like turn to Exodus 34 and say. Right here, Ten Commandments, it's a lie. I knew that. But what started off as something small continued to build into something bigger and bigger and bigger. Until finally, I ended up sitting on their, in their living room, busted. And this had been like four months. Like it was nearing the end of the semester. And I had lied to them at least four or five times because they suspected that I was out of class. And I was like, no! And then I like lied again, and I lied again, and I lied again. And it was just this thing where I just kept trying to hide myself. You know, we talked about that about a month ago, a month and a half ago, where we hide from God and we hide from people. That's exactly what I was doing at this point. But the whole time I was doing this, I knew it was wrong. But I still did it. I don't know uh, about you, but I suspect that if you're human, and like the humans that I've spoken with, that maybe you do this too. Maybe you don't lie about going to English class when you're 19 years old, or 18 years old. Uh, But maybe for you, the thing that you do wrong, you know is wrong, has something to do with your words. uh, Downstairs we talked a little bit about uh, word vomit. 
which is a gross concept, but it makes sense. Because there are some times when you're in a conversation, usually with a spouse, and there are words in your head that you're like, those aren't the right words to say. I ain't going to say those words. Shouldn't say them. And then all of a sudden your mouth is like, I am now saying those words you were thinking about. It's like, what are you doing, mouth? Stop that. And like, you just almost feel like you want to reach out and just grab them and, and rein them back in, but you can't. You can't unsay things. You can't unring that bell. And sometimes we say it in anger. Sometimes we say it out of fear. But sometimes our words can write a big check that we cannot cash. Sometimes we go so far and extend ourselves um, by saying things that maybe we don't even really believe inside of ourselves, like our true selves, but we still say hurtful, mean things to people we love or about hurtful, mean things to people we don't even know. And in so doing, we are criticizing and tearing down the very image of God walking around on earth. Because scripture says that we're all made in God's image. Maybe for you it's not words. Maybe it's anger. Just, just outright anger and all the things that go along with that. I know what anger feels like. I know what anger feels like. It's, it's like this red hot feeling that starts, for me, it starts in my gut. And then it like tingles to all my skin. And then suddenly I'm just out of control. And, and I, I, I sometimes I do say things that are hurtful, but sometimes like I um, am silent because I'm trying to hurt somebody. Or there, are, there have been a couple times when I've been um, violent, not towards Jane, not towards people, but definitely violent. And it's like, uh, this is, okay, I'm just going to tell you a really quick story. One of the most angry times of my life. I had a terrible day, and at the end of the day, I got to the kitchen, and I opened the Tupperware cupboard, thinking it was the glass cupboard. I don't know why. I lived there for a long time. I don't know if you've ever opened the Tupperware cupboard that's over your head, but one of them is waiting to leap at you. And this is exactly what happened. I opened the Tupperware cupboard. This Tupperware comes down, and I'm already, like, beside myself angry, like, trembling angry. I'm just, like, trying to keep it together because I know that getting really, really angry is wrong. And so this Tupperware hits me on the head, and before I know it, I've got this Tupperware, and I'm just like, Gah! and I'm holding two pieces of Tupperware in my hands, just trembling with anger. And it's like, I could, and then Jenny was there, and she looked at me, and she's like, did that just, and I looked at her, and I was like, yeah, that totally happened. But you know what anger's like? You know that uncontrollable feeling. If this is something that you deal with, then, then you know what I'm talking about. It's like there's this like, other thing that rises up inside of you. And its job is to destroy, all right? You know kind of what that feels like. Maybe for you, it's um, fear. Maybe you don't do things that you ought to do because you're afraid to do them. You see someone on the side of the road, you're like, oh, I don't really want to stop. I've got ice cream. They're having the worst day ever, and I've got ice cream, and I don't want to stop, because what if they're a bad guy? Like, what if they pull a gun on me, or what if they pull a knife on me, or like, what if they're scary? And, and like, this is an excuse that we use to not do the right thing, because we're afraid of doing it. Or maybe, I mean, maybe it's a bigger thing than that. Maybe God is asking you to, to make a big step forward in something. And through fear, you tell God, no. Like Jonah, who runs the other way when God says, go to that great city, Nineveh. And Jonah says, uh, I'm going to the ocean instead. I think I'm going to be a fisherman. 
It's a different career choice for me. And God says, hmm, here's a giant fish. I guess I could act out the book of Jonah for you. It's not that good. Um, I'll work on it and then maybe do it later. Um, But we all have these moments where something inside of us, regardless of what the motivation is, makes us do things that are against our conscience. Uh, for the guys and some gals in the room, I know that, that, that pornography and lust is a thing. And, and it just overrides your thinking. You know, you go places and you look at things that you know you shouldn't. I mean, you, you know better, but you still do because it's like you just, you, you just need to. Like there's this drive inside of you that is apart from you. It feels like it's just like an alien thing inside of you that's just like, yes, you must do this. And for some of us, it can dominate our lives. And that's scary. Or any other addiction for that matter. I mean, honestly, I, have, I shouldn't be surprised at the things that people can get addicted to. I sincerely think people can get addicted to Netflix. Not chemically addicted, but you know, habitually uh, addicted in the sense that you just like, have to do this for some sort of like, euphoric response. Like you just find yourself compulsively watching the next season of whatever it is. All right. I know that in our minds, we all just thought of a thing. And if honestly, if you just thought of the next season of whatever it is, and you thought, oh, this, maybe you have an addiction. I don't know. <laughs> Think about that. But my point is that we all run into these places where we feel like we have to do a thing. And then we do that thing. And then what do we feel? Guilt. Self-hate regret, maybe anger, anger at yourself. Sometimes it's not as healthy and it's anger at other people. Like, why did you make me do this? And it's a terrible, terrible cycle to be a part of. And I think that it is humanity's cycle. I think it's, it's just part, of, part and parcel of being human. And so today, what I want to offer you is some hope. I want to offer you some, some hopefully convicting passages that will tell us there is a better way. And that better way has nothing to do with our bootstraps. Um, If you are not familiar with scripture, uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And it starts appropriately in the beginning. And in fact, uh, the Hebrew title for Genesis is the word beginning. And the idea is, is that it is this great epic of a thing where God speaks into nothing. And something happens. God speaks into nothing and something happens. And then he says, it was good. So God makes, not in this order, because I could never remember the order for some reason. Uh, God makes the firmament in the heaven. He makes the earth. He makes the waters. He makes the light and the dark. He makes the birds in the sky. He makes the fish in the sea. He makes the, the animals with the hooves walking around and the reptiles and everything that exists. He, at some point, just made it up. And he said, wouldn't this be a great idea? Boom, it is. And then afterwards, after every time he made a thing, on each day that he created, he says, it is good. Except when he got to people. Genesis 1 says that when he got to us, he made us differently. He made us in his own likeness, and in his own image. Not to bog you down too much in uh, academia. I believe the best way to understand that in his image, in his likeness, 
is as his image, as his likeness. The, the, the word there is actually used for idols later on in, in uh, the Old Testament, where the, the gods were distilled down to this little wooden statue that would represent their god. And so these people would have these little gods in their house, and they would pray to their little gods, and they would hope that maybe the, the big version would deliver them from whatever they're looking for. God's idols are us. God's image is us. And so I think the wording for that very first section you have there in your notes is that God made us to be good. Or he made us good. (laughs) Yeah, I made it on purpose grammatically incorrect. Because he didn't make us well. Yes, he did do that. But that's not what I'm saying. God made us good. With like a capital G. He made us in his own image and in his own likeness. And then, in fact, when he looks at us, he says, this is very good. That's humanity. That's at our core. That's who we are on the deep, 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 some of us deeper still, inside. Made in God's image. And I know that there are probably some of us here that are like, man, I don't know. I met this guy, or I met this lady, or I work with this guy, or I live with this guy that I'm not sure is made in God's image. <laughs> this is a little messed up. Well, the truth is that Scripture tells us very quickly, in fact, three chapters into the book of Genesis, it tells us that we messed it up really soon. And even though we were made in God's image to be the very likeness of God, that very, very quickly Satan tempts us by saying, you can be like God, if you do this other thing that he said not to do. Which is a terrible, terrible lie because Eve was already like God. And so she's like, well, I'm going to take control into my own hands. And so she did and she grabs the fruit and she eats of it and she shares it with her husband. And I don't think it was really about the fruit. It's not like a magic apple from Snow White. I think it was about rebellion and saying my way is better than God's way. We took the very creativity and the decision-making and the skills that God gave us as our imageness to reflect him, and we used them against him. And we said, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want. Which kind of reminds me of those little voices, doesn't it? One says, you ought to do this. The other says, you will do this. I'm going to do what I want. And so there's this idea in theology and in scripture That we are made fundamentally in our essence to be the very good image of God, to reflect his glory, to point to him as the creator of all things, to say that he is magnificent and he is a person and he has he has decisions, he makes choices, he is intelligent. Like we reflect so many things about God. But then we all were born into this world where we covered it with our own way. I want to do what I want to do. And so it's, it's, it's basically like taking this ball of solid gold and then rolling it in something of less value. Uh, I won't talk about specifically what that less value is because this is church and that would be inappropriate, but it would be really gross and it's really violent. It smells bad and it involves bathrooms. Like, that's the image of what I think sin does to us. It takes something that's very good and then it covers it in, I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's not very good. And it is bad. 
And so uh, the next spot in your notes is that sin distorts our image, but it does not destroy it. It distorts our image, but it does not distort it. Uh, think of it like, um, like if, if God is strong and God is powerful and God is able to do things that we are not able to do, then it makes a lot of sense that the thing that he created, we can't uncreate. We might be able to hide it. We might be able to cover it. We might be able to distort it. But we can't uncreate who we are on the inside is our essence, the very good image of God. But we can distort it. It's kind of like seeing somebody through really old windows. I don't know if you've ever been to, do they have any at the fort? I don't know. Where like it's it's like warped and cloudy, and somebody's face suddenly looks really bizarre, just all not all on its own like my face is, but like you know like you have to look through it, and it's like there's an eye down here, and then there's like a nose up here, and it just kind of it's like all the pieces are there, but it's just wrong, like it's just like ugh, out of sync. That's what sin does to us. It distorts the image of God. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites, says. That every sin is the distortion of the energy that's breathed into us, the breath of God. An energy which, if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. If we were able to walk around without this distortion of sin, we would walk in the will of God. We would hang out with him. Like, we would say, hey God, I was thinking. He says, I was thinking the same thing. That's brilliant. And you, and you would just kind of, we would create stuff together. The garden would be a lot bigger because there's more of us now. But we would all just kind of walk around and, and just constantly bring good into the world. But that's not the case. And that's not what happened. And that's not what happens. Because goodness knows, at least this heart does not need Adam and Eve to have originally sinned. For some reason, I find it all on my own. For some reason, I don't need to inherit it. Though I did, and though scripture tells me that we inherit sin from our parents and from their parents and from their parents and from their parents and we're all just distorted, I kind of see the creation story in my own life. And maybe you do too. Where it's like God says, don't do this thing. And then there's this other voice that says, yeah, but don't you want to? And so um, I want to tell you, some good news and some bad news, and it's mostly good news. The bad news is, is that you're not entirely wrong. That there is a voice that says, you want to do what you want to do. And that feeling of helplessness, there's something to that. But there's so much more to the truth. So in the book of Romans, which is a pretty... It's a pretty popular book. It's a pretty well-covered book. Uh, It was Paul's statement to a church that he wasn't even a part of. He was basically summing up everything he believed about who God was and the way that we could know him to this church in Rome. And he's going there. He wants to go there, but he he sends his letter ahead so they can kind of know who he is and know what he thinks. And so he writes this letter, and he, he starts this epic, like, great argument where he lays a premise that all have sinned, kind of like what we've talked about. Uh, that's in Romans chapter 3. If you want to look at that and, and see if you are exempt from the idea of being sinful and being distorted and not being uh, covered in, in your own way, uh, read Romans chapter 3 and tell me if you are not part of all. 
All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. Uh, And then he continues to unfold this thing, and he talks about grace. He talks about justification. He talks about the righteousness of God. And these are all huge, huge words to really just talk about how God loves his kids. How God loves, his, loves humanity and he gave them Jesus Christ on the cross for their sake. So then he starts talking in our section about things that don't work. Things that were broken. And the thing that was broken that he's talking about when we start reading here in verse 14 is the law. He says that the law was good and there's nothing wrong with the law. But as soon as he found out that something was bad, that's the thing he wanted to do. I call this like the three-year-old principle. If any of you have ever known a three-year-old, if you want them to do something, tell them not to do something. And they will do that thing. Or they will desperately yearn to do that thing. If you say, you cannot go outside to play, even if they were not interested in going outside to play, they'd be like, I want to go outside right now. You know? And he says that the, that's kind of what happens with the law. As soon as God revealed the law through, uh, through Moses and through the Old Testament, it, there's like this rebellion inside of me that even if I didn't know that this thing was wrong before, and I didn't do this thing that was wrong before, as soon as I heard about it, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And he says that the law, the only thing that the law does, the only thing that following a set of rules of do's and don'ts does, boy, that's kind of funny. The only thing that following a set of rules that say do and don't does, I, didn't, I missed it. You'll have to listen to the recording. I don't know. The only thing that accomplishes is it tells you that you're wrong. It does not help you grow. If God's Ten Commandments were one commandment and it said do not lie, all I would know if I just had rules was I did lie. And I did break God's rules, and I am bad. In a world where it's just law, we uh, are pretty powerless because there's this thing inside of us, and he uses the word sin, which is a really loaded word nowadays, in the church and without the church. Because see, within the church, we talk about sin, and we're like, yeah, get it, it's bad. Let's tackle sin, let's defeat sin, let's defeat sin in our own lives, like, let's get it. But in the outside world, I think that the, the secular world looks at the church and we use words like sin and sinners. The first thing they think about is how we hate people and how we judge people, even though I know we don't. You know, we always say, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. People that are outside of our faith don't understand that. They don't, get, they don't understand that nuance. And so I want to encourage you that if you're uh, in a conversation with somebody about sin and sinning, be careful as you walk through that. Because that word means so much, and it can be so incredibly devastating in ways that aren't good, in ways that don't lead to Jesus, in ways that maybe push people away from his church. So, that's a freebie. But sin is this word that he says is inside of us. James says that our own temptation starts from inside of us. He says it's this thing And he starts characterizing it as a separate entity. So there's the person, there's the law, and then there's sin. And then in verse 14 of chapter 7, 
I believe we're going to have it on the screen. Is that right, Roy? Verse, oh, there we go. Verse 13. We'll read that. Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's talking about the law. He says, the law is good. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might, show, might be shown to actually be sin. It would be shown for what it is. If there's a rule book, we know when we're wrong. And he says that sin would be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Something that we cannot even tolerate because we know what God's law says. And so, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And here's where it gets really personal for me, really quick. And I want you to, as I hear this, to think, I. Because I do not believe that Paul is talking about some hypothetical person. I think Paul is talking about his current struggle. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So he wants to do a good thing, and he doesn't want to do a bad thing. But he finds out that he does the bad thing, but he doesn't do the good thing. He says, if I do what I do not want, if I, if I do sin, then I agree with the law and that it itself is good. If I sin, then I show, yeah, well, the law is good. It shows me when I went wrong, and this is a good test. Good job, law. I am bad. He says, um, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells inside of me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. It's really confusing here if we constantly think that he's always talking about the same I. I think he's introducing this idea that there are two things inside of us. There is the very, very good, and then there's that covering that says, I'm going to do what I want. And he says, I, on the inside, will to do good. I want to do what's right, but I, on the outside, cannot I can't get it right. He says, um, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 18 says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells inside of me. There's this, this rip down his middle, he feels. He says, there's the things that I want to do, and then there's the things that I actually do. And I never actually do the right thing, and I always actually do the wrong thing. And it's just like, ah, I hate this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. What is it they say that the road of hell is paved with? Good intentions. Yeah, even the best efforts, the best meaning, the best, oh, I want to do the right thing, is often beset by temptation right away. And he personifies it. He says, evil lies close at hand. For I, on the inside, I'm adding that word inside, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, that word just specifically references body. He says, in in my physicality, in the way that I do stuff, when my arms move and when my legs move and when my mouth moves, it just feels like there's this war. 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he says this thing that just constantly resonates with me until I remind myself of something later. When I'm down, when I'm low, when I feel like I've just done something terrible that I know I shouldn't have done and I really wish I hadn't, I get to this point where I uh, say, oh, what a wretched man that I am. And I don't know how many of us have ever had that moment where the guilt and the fear and the anger, the regret dominates you. And it covers your life and it, it doesn't allow you to speak any other good things. Uh, I want you to know that you're not alone. I've been there. But then he says something else. And this is the beginning of our hope. And this is the beginning of the turn. Because this is pretty bad news, isn't it? It's like, hey, guess what? You can't not sin. Good job. <laughs> Have a great week, I guess. Try to. You're not. You know, That's like a terrible way to send people out. And that's not where Paul stops. And that's not where I think we should stop. Because the very next breath that he has in his war against himself. He says, oh, what a wretched man that I am. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is he saying? Like, why? Is it, did he mean to put that later? Or did he mean, I really don't think so. I think he put these two verses side by side to show us the war that we all fight. There's the guilt and the condemnation and the thing that tells us that you are not worth anything. You are bad. You are a villain. And then immediately he looks to God and he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he sums up again. He says, thanks be to God. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there's this thing that's going on. And then he explains himself a bit. He says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The ones that are beating their chest and saying, oh, what a wretched man am I, should really say, thanks be to God. And, yeah. Oh, thanks, Garrett. He said, I'm not wretched. Oh, man, Garrett, bromance right here. Um, you aren't either. And you know the thing is, God tells us that too. He says, you aren't that thing that you thought you were. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of anything inside of you and not because of anything inside of me. But he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cannot look at ourselves and say, oh, what a wretched man am I. Because in the midst of our sin, it says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now I realize I might have left you behind the notes. Our war is now between the flesh and the spirit. If you want to write that in and fill in the blanks. I, I know some of us are a little compulsive and we have to, like if there's a blank, we have to fill it in. So, just saying. 
Our war is now between the flesh and the spirit. But this is my favorite thing to write down. And I want you to circle this and star it and like cut it out and hang it on your mirror. The next thing is that Jesus is the one who wins our war and not us. Because it says in Romans 8, verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And in verse 2, I skipped it. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He's already punished that part of you that you're constantly trying to punish again. He's already seen the sin inside of you. Like, the things you haven't done yet, that's not a surprise to God when it happens. God looked at that. He looked at your whole ledger, and he said, forgiven. And it wasn't just you know, flippant, it wasn't light, it was heavy and it cost a lot and it was measured in blood. God's blood for us. For me and for you. And so when we beat our breast and we say, oh, what a wretched man am I? We're kind of living in the past again. Because we have this reality. You know, even after we, we meet Jesus, there's still this temptation, there's still this existence of sin in our life. But there is not that condemnation. You can't judge you because you are a terrible judge compared to God. And he says that he has set us free. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinfulness, sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You don't have to live the old life. You don't have to live in that. That's not your name anymore. There is a beautiful, beautiful scene in Indiana Jones. We're going to show it in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like a Indiana Jones. What? Uh, I'm an 80s baby. What can I say? Um, where, uh, how many people have seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? It's the one, not the one with the melting faces or the bats, but it's the one, yeah. It's the one where uh, the Ark of the Covenant with the cup, right? Yeah. And um, there's this beautiful thing that happens because up until this point, Sean Connery, who plays... It's really Han Solo in disguise. Let's all be honest. Uh, Sean Connery plays Indiana Jones' father, Henry Jones. And the entire movie, he calls his son Junior. (laughs) And Indiana hates it because that's not his name anymore. He's like Indiana Jones. He's like, I'm cool now. Don't call me Junior. (laughs) That's not my name. And so the whole movie, his dad calls him that. And then they get to the end of the film and they find the Holy Grail. They find the cup that Jesus passed around to his disciples. It's fiction. But he, they find the cup somehow and it has like magic in it, which is kind of cool. It's like, it's Hollywood for sure. Uh, anyway, so they find this cup and they, they, his dad gets shot and he heals and it's like bubbly and it's cool and he lives. and So that's good. And like everything's like hunky-dory except when this girl does something. She crosses the seal, which is one of the rules. You can't take the Holy Grail past this part. So, where would you mind playing that for us? We're just going to watch this real quick. We have got it. Come on! Good, Nelson. 
Elsa, don't move. It's ours, Indy. Yours and mine. Elsa, don't cross the seal. The night warned us not to take the ground from here. Jones reaches down for his son. He says, Junior, you got to give me your other hand. And he, Indiana just saw what happened to this other person. And he falls into the exact same pit, which is kind of like what we do, isn't it? It's like you see other people screw up, and it's like, the you. And then it's all, all of a sudden, it's me. And he's holding on to him. And Indiana is reaching down for the grail, which I think represents so much to him. It represents the idea of finding the most precious thing in history. It represents maybe wealth, maybe notoriety. But for us, I think the thing that we reach for is self-righteousness or condemnation. We want to live on our own rules. We want to live by our own set of standards. And we, and we reach down and we're, we're like, no, I have to follow the law. I have to do good. I have to be right before God, before he loves me. And I think God looks down at us and he calls us by the name that he gave us. By our real name. Which is still such a cool thing when he says, Indiana, let it go. Because see, the truth is, the end of this sermon is not about let's be better and do gooder. That's really what a lot of other sermons are about and that's fine. The point that I'm trying to make today is that we need to grasp Jesus by both hands. We need to wrap him up and not let him go. We need to remember that our, uh, our justification, the righteousness of God imparted to us, is by him alone. It's not by you ever. And so if, if you're holding on to condemnation, if you're holding on to a set of this legalism that I just have to follow the rules to set things right, I want you to let that thing go. Because you'll find that as you let those things go and as you hold fast to God and you reach out to him, you'll find that he actually can bring deliverance so much better than you would have anyway. 
So we're going to sing um, just a couple songs here. The first one is Beautiful Things. And maybe uh, for this song, if you, if you want to sing it, that's great. But if you just want to sit and quietly contemplate what that means for you, what it would look like for God to make you into something that's new. And 2 Corinthians says that we are made as a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We can't live in the law anymore and we can't live in sin anymore. It's only and always God. That's the way forward. So if you just want to sit and and think through that, that's cool. Um, I just want to tell you that we can be free in Christ. That the law of liberty is not just lip service. That Jesus truly does set us free from our own standards. Jesus truly does set us free from our own condemnation. And it does indeed become a beautiful thing.